Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Why and what and how and whether it was exciting or not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A very long, wonderful adventure. Hello, welcome to episode 18 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the groundbreaking management rights company that completely transformed the business side of rock and roll in the 70s becoming synonymous with the decadence, extravagance and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. Girls like boys who look pretty. It's just one of those things. They don't like smelly men. Funnily enough, it's a strange thing. They really don't care for it. So I kept thinking to myself, if they just look like beautiful boy dolls on stage, it'll be perfect. And not wearing any nasty jeans, because that's what those American bands did. They look like trash. Main Man was formed by entrepreneur and empresario Tony DeFries, who worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, and David Bowie. Going up on the train, there was a guy that had makeup on, and he was a mod, but he wore makeup, and I'd never seen that before. I'd seen the clothes, and he wore eyeshadow, and I thought that was really peculiar, and I thought it looked rather good. Then I found out that up in London, all the mods wore makeup. You love like a woman, but you walk like a sailor. You give in this episode, we're once again at home in West London with Dana Gillespie, one of the very first acts to become part of Main Man, having been introduced to Tony DeFries by David Bowie. Dana has written a great memoir about her very interesting life called Weren't Born a Man, which was the title of her first Main Man album. So it's a great opportunity to have her read some of the chapters recalling her adventures with Main Man, particularly the period she spent writing and performing with David Bowie in 1969. David Bowie and I were seeing a lot of each other at the time. When he was staying round the corner from me in South Kensington, he would often come by to tell me about his latest conquests or newest ideas for songs. One time he called me up and said, I've written this song half an hour ago and I'm coming right over now to play it to you so you can tell me what you think. He appeared at my front door a few minutes later with his guitar and Gerard Mankovic and I were the first people to hear him sing Space Oddity. We didn't realise at the time what an iconic song this would become. It wasn't necessary for me to sing my latest compositions to him for approval anymore, as I'd now signed as a songwriter to Immediate Records, the label owned by Andrew Lou Goldham, the flamboyant manager of the Rolling Stones. Once a month I would go to a studio to record demos of my latest compositions, working with loads of really good musicians, such as guitarist Chris Spedding and Ray Russell. Jack Good asked if he could manage my career and I did initially sign to his agency but shortly after that my life took another turn. Like me, Bowie had been going through a few managerial changes and he often used to say to me that we both needed a decent manager. One day he rang me up and said, I think I've found the perfect man for us. He took me to an office in Regent Street and introduced me to Tony DeFries. 
From the moment I met Tony, I adored him. My first impression of de Vries was that he was like a large, hairy bear. He was slow-moving, self-confident and softly spoken. He usually had a big cigar in his mouth or in his hand and when he talked, he swayed from side to side like a moored ship. He gave off an air of dependability and I felt I could trust him. I've always had a soft spot for guys who put their hand on my shoulder and say to me, let me take care of this for you. This sort of thing was heaven to my ears, especially when it came from someone who knew what he was talking about. De Vries didn't talk nonsense. He was sober and didn't get stoned. This is just what you need in a manager. Over the years, I've lost count of the number of managers I've met who wanted to party as hard as their artists. That was the norm back in the 70s, resulting in many showbiz casualties. But de Vries was too smart to get wasted. He just let his artists get on with it while he stuck to deals, plotting careers and talked legal jargon till people either glazed over or gave him what he wanted. For a start, he got David unentangled from his past management deal, which basically meant breaking a contract and sorting out the mess afterwards. He did the same for me too, though it wasn't so difficult as Jack Good was very happy for me and gave me his blessing. De Vries had a legal background and worked in the music management company called Gem Music Group with a guy called Lawrence Myers. Their offices were always buzzing with up-and-coming musicians and songwriters, all hoping to forge careers in the music business. One fellow who was often hanging around was Paul Gadd. He would find fame a couple of years later as Gary Glitter. When he was performing regularly on Top of the Pops, none of us could have predicted his shocking fall from grace in the 1990s. Tony McCauley was another songwriter who was often in the office. He wrote, Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes, Baby Now That I've Found You, and Build Me Up Buttercup, amongst many other hits. At the time, he was going out with singer Sylvia McNeil, who was to be the original Mary Magdalene in Jesus Christ Superstar until, well, that's a story for later. Bowie called me up one day and said, I've just met a woman I think you'll get on with. From 1969 to 1972, Bowie and Angie lived in a place called Haddon Hall in Beckenham, a suburb in the south of London. The house was huge, a kind of gothic thing, but sadly it's not there anymore as it's been demolished in the 80s and replaced by a block of flats. Bowie had rented a flat on the ground floor for which he paid about £7 a month. Although the house was enormous, the flat itself only had a few rooms. When you walked in, there was this great big open space with a minstrel's gallery and a marvellous stained glass window at one end. Bowie and Angie were in the bedroom off the hall, where they had a television and a load of dramatic furnishings, including the chaise longue, where the cover photo for The Man Who Sold the World was taken. There was a small kitchen where Angie would rustle up some food and a large garden where the famous photographs of Bowie and his Mr Fish man dress were taken. The band used to sleep on mattresses up on the minstrel's gallery. In all the time I knew him, Bowie was never interested in normal, boring, blokey things. If something on television caught his eye, such as Japanese kabuki theatre, he would call out, Quick, it's on! and we'd all climb onto his bed to watch the programme with him. Many people in the music business are curious for philosophical things, and Bowie was no exception. He liked to immerse himself in esoteric subjects. 
One evening, when Bowie was on one of his first trips to America, Angie and I were together in Haddon Hall, and he telephoned in a state of excitement. He'd just been to Roswell, a place where aliens landed and where the Americans now keep quiet about. I've seen an alien, he said, and the FBI are keeping it quiet. It was about midnight when he called and he went on and on about it, saying, you know, it's happened, it's true, the aliens exist. David was very, very enthusiastic, though it wasn't clear whether he had literally seen something or if he'd met people who had. The latter is actually more likely, now I think about it. Anyway, he said that two aliens had landed in a spacecraft and that their bodies were being preserved in ice so that they didn't fall to pieces. His enthusiasm was so contagious that we both believed him. Angie used to enjoy dressing David and me up, as she was great at finding clothes and was all really inventive with style. When I look back through my old photographs, I can easily see the outfits that had Angie's touch to them. Lots of glamorous, sparkle, high heels and originality. Left to my own devices, I would have been quite happy to stay in shirt and jeans. But I was also happy to have her take such an interest in the image side of things, as it was never my main priority. David just let her get on with it too, as we both recognised that she had style and she knew how to use it. She used to buy Bowie's trousers for him and he was so slim that both of them would be able to wear them. She bought most of the clothes he wore, even his high heels were bought by her, and when he stepped out, heads would spin, which was how he liked it. Angie was highly instrumental in helping David to create the image and persona of Ziggy Stardust, though I don't think she ever got the credit she deserved for her role in making him a star. She was the one who had the drive and ambition, while strangely enough he would be rather shy and retiring. It was Angie who bought in the hairdresser Susie to cut David's long hair and create the famous Ziggy mullet. Angie also persuaded me to get my long hair cut around that time, which was a great decision because I got rid of that hippie look. Various musicians would turn up at Haddon Hall, and from this group, the Ziggy Stardust band, the Spiders from Mars, was born. Drummer Mick Woody Woodmansey and bass player Trevor Boulder both came from East Yorkshire, as did guitarist Mick Ronson, Rono, as I always called him, and he was fresh off the train from Hull when Bowie first introduced us. He was a beautiful-looking man with the longest eyelashes you've ever seen, and a lovely Yorkshire accent. Hull accent, actually. Musicians used to seek comfort wherever they can get it, and Rono, who was pretty broke and homesick when we first met, did share my bed occasionally. It was never going to be a boyfriend or girlfriend thing between us, and it certainly wasn't a love affair. It was just more a way of passing the evening. It, all this was long before he and Susie, who in due course married Rono, became an item. I never encroached on his love affairs and vice versa. It was more a case of mates with benefits. Bowie and I were both busy getting songs together for our respective new albums and DeFries arranged for us to record a demo album at Trident Studios with seven of David's songs on one side and five of mine on the other. He had 500 copies pressed to try to secure a record deal for Bowie and me and it has become known as the Bow Promo. If you have a copy, then put it in a safe because it's become one of the most valuable Bowie collectibles. 
Poor Lawrence Myers, in his excellent book Hunky Dory Who Knew, writes that he had a pile of these promos that were, and I quote, cluttering up my office, so once they got a record deal I threw them all away. I'm sure he regrets that now. Funnily enough, speaking to Lawrence recently reminded me that around this time I suggested that Dudley Moore be brought in to play piano on some of the sessions as I knew Dudley musically, but obviously Rick Waitman must have got in there first. Amusingly, Lawrence writes about my idea, and I quote again, this was a very commercial thought, but Dudley didn't respond to Jem's letter of invitation. If he had, maybe we would remember Dudley for his piano playing on Life on Mars rather than the star of Ten and Arthur. In any case, if you're interested in this period, I would strongly recommend that you read Lawrence's book, not just for his statement that Dana didn't reach her potential at the time but later developed into a fine blues singer, Thank You, Lawrence. But on one of the tracks on one of my side of the demo album was a song Bowie had written for me called Andy Warhol. The original version with Rono on bass and Bowie on 12-string acoustic guitar and backing vocals, together with my five songs from Bow promo, were recently reissued on my double album What Memories We Make. I also sang Andy Warhol when Bowie performed on the prestigious John Peel radio show in June 1971. Bowie didn't really like the song that much at the time, which might be why he gave it to me. Then again, it wasn't much later that he gave one of his best songs, All the Young Dudes, to Mott the Hoople. So maybe he was just happy to help me out by giving me a good song. When he heard how it sounded with Rono playing electric guitar, he decided to record it himself for his Hunky Dory album. The John Peel Show, recorded on the 3rd of June 1971 and broadcast on the 20th of June, was the first time Bowie and the guys who became the Spiders from Mars played together live. Trevor only arrived from Hull the day before the recording and had to learn the songs overnight. Bowie wanted to get his mates involved, so George Underwood, Jeff McCormick and I were all included. John Peel introduced us to David Bowie and an astonishing number of friends. The set list mainly featured songs from what John Peel said could very well be called Hunky Dory. That's if we can find out how Hunky Dory is spelt. It included Cooks which Bowie introduced by saying, they phoned through and said my wife had had a baby on Sunday morning, so I wrote this song about the baby. Queen Bitch and Song for Bob Dylan, together with two songs that didn't make it onto the final album, Bombers and Looking for a Friend. I sang backing vocals on a number of the songs, including It Ain't Easy, which was to end up on the Ziggy Stardust album, again with me on backing vocals. Bowie introduced me by saying, This is another friend of mine who lives in London and she's very, 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 very excellent songwriter. And she hasn't been recorded yet with her own compositions. And needless to say, tonight is no exception. She's doing one of my songs that I wrote for her. It's called Andy Warhol and this is Miss Dana Gillespie. I guess Bowie forgot that I'd already made two albums for Decca in the 60s featuring many of my own compositions, but I wasn't about to contradict him on air, particularly as he'd been so kind about my songwriting. It's a mystery why Bowie wrote Andy Warhol for me. 
Bowie was clearly fascinated by him, though apparently they didn't really get on that well when they first met. I myself did meet Warhol at the factory in New York a few years later, but not with Bowie. The Warhol factory made a screen print of me based on a photograph by Terry O'Neill, and it was used as the cover image on my RCA album Ain't Gonna Play No Second Fiddle, also a mainman production. Bowie did get one up on me, though, by finishing Hunky Dory and getting it released before I'd finished my album, Weren't Born a Man. So it was Bowie's version of Andy Warhol and mine that was heard first. In the end, because of my commitments in Jesus Christ Superstar, about which later, which would have prevented me from being able to do any promotional activity, my album didn't get released until late 1973, my version of Andy Warhol was released as a single and there was a rather cool video made of it which you can see on YouTube. A few days after the John Peel show was recorded, Bowie de Vries and I travelled to Glastonbury in Somerset on Saturday the 19th of June 1971 where Bowie was booked to perform at the second Glastonbury Festival. He hadn't performed live for nearly a year and he was keen to get back up on stage. It was a very warm summer day and we decided to walk to the festival site from the railway station. Bowie wore a floppy brimmed hat, a pair of high-waisted yellow 20s-style Oxford bags and a magician's coat that Angie had bought for him at a shop on the Fulham Road. In the evening, the weather was dreadful with heavy rain and traditional glasto mud. Bowie was scheduled to play at 7.30pm, but technical problems with the usual sound badly messed up the running order, and he finally made it to the stage at 5am the next morning, greeting the dawn with a short set. He played a selection of old and new songs, Bombers, Oh You Pretty Things, Quicksand, Cooks, Changes, Amsterdam, Song for Bob Dylan, The Supermen, and finally Memory of a Free Festival. As he sang the line about the sun machine coming down, the sun itself appeared, its rays shining off the side of the Silver Pyramid stage. People were waking up in their sleeping bags, having been frozen all night in the mud, and came out to listen and watch. It was a quite extraordinary moment, which I was reminded of when David returned to headline Glastonbury so triumphantly 29 years later. Bowie originally intended to produce my Weren't Born a Man album, and there were a couple of songs on it I wrote about him, namely Dizzy Heights and Eternal Showman. By the time the studios were booked and all the songs put together, his career had taken a massive upward turn and he went off for a short trip to America, leaving Mick Ronson to take over the producer's role. The recordings were all done in Trident Studios just off Wardour Street in London, which is the same studio Bowie recorded Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust. The studio musicians included Rick Waitman, fresh from playing on Bowie's Hunky Dory album on piano, Bobby Keys on sax, perhaps best known for touring with the Rolling Stones and playing the saxophone solo on Brown Sugar, Terry Cox, who played on Bowie's Space Oddity, and Barry D'Souza on drums with Ray Cooper, who has played with Elton John for nearly 50 years on percussion. The strings were arranged by Rono and Del Newman, and Del also played synthesizer. I originally wanted Paul Buckmaster as the arranger, but by then he was so busy doing Elton stuff that he wasn't available. That's why I took Del, and he did a great job. 
Lou Reed sometimes turned up with Bowie at Trident Studios. <laughs> Lou was the first person I ever saw wearing black nail varnish. Rono was very serious during the recording sessions as he didn't like too many disturbances and co-producer Robin Cable was also quite earnest. It wasn't party time, unlike when I did my next album, which was crazy from start to finish. It was perhaps fortunate that Iggy Pop was in America at that time. The title song, Weren't Born a Man, had been co-written by me and my boyfriend at the time, Mick Lieber. We'd met when he was playing in one of my favourite bands, Ashton Gardner and Dyke, who had a huge hit with Resurrection Shuffle. I'd known Tony Ashton, Kim Gardner and Roy Dyke since the early 60s, when Ashton had been in a band called the Remo Four. Mick Lieber, who'd moved into the bunker with me, had played on In a Broken Dream by Python Lee Jackson with Rod Stewart on lead vocals, and on the strength of this, Mick got a solo deal. As he himself didn't sing, he chose Weren't Born a Man with me singing it as his first single, and it was released under the name Libido. Sadly, it disappeared without a trace, but I'd always believed in the song and chose it as the title track of my album. Initially, I wrote it for my friend Sandra Wood, who was my assistant at the time. She'd been with me in Catch My Soul, and when DeFries told us we must all travel first class and have personal assistance, I asked Sandra if she wanted the gig. Catch My Soul had just finished, and so she said yes. So off we went to America together and had an absolute hoot. She later married the guy who managed the tourists, Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart, which morphed into the Eurythmics. Sandra and I were really good friends and would often say to each other, it's such a shame you weren't born a man because we had the perfect relationship, only obviously there was a, a dick missing between us. We were just great mates, and so the song was written for her. It's not a song about being a lesbian. We never did that kind of thing, unless there was a man there, which did happen once or twice, but I'm still not entirely sure why people thought it was a lesbian song, and if anyone thought it was, they got it completely wrong. So guess what? The BBC decided it was a lesbian thing and banned it. We haven't exactly banned it, said a rather huffy BBC spokesman. We're just not playing the record. Another song on the album, Mother Don't Be Frightened, was written when I'd taken some LSD. I woke up the next morning and wrote the song as a kind of open letter to my mother. The song featured the soon-to-be spiders from Mars, Rono, Trevor and Woody Woodmansey, and the orchestral score was done by Rono, who had recently done a similar job for Bowie on his Hunky Dory album, including on the classic Life on Mars. Most people remember my Weren't Born a Man album, if they do at all, because of the cover shot by my friend Gerard Mankovich. The intention was to make it obvious that I hadn't been born a man, as I wore a black corset, black stockings and suspenders, very high heels and a feather boa. It seems rather tame by today's standards, but it was quite risque then. Dufree seemed genuinely interested in my songs and was happy for me to just carry on creating, which is really all any songwriter wants to do. Bowie was, of course, his number one act, and I had come on board at his suggestion, but soon we all became like a family, Bowie, Angie, myself and... Rono and Tony DeFries in the role of father figure. It was around that time that DeFries gave me a Polaroid camera and encouraged me to take as many pictures as I wanted. These days everyone clicks away on their mobile phones, but in the early 70s the ability to take instant photographs was new and exciting. 
Over the next few years, I took hundreds of these pictures, often capturing visiting friends like the Bowies, Mick Jagger, Jeff Beck, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithful, Kiki D, Lionel Barton, many, many others. Sometimes I handed the camera to a friend to take pictures of me, and a number of which are probably not suitable for publication. It's not surprising that we used to call them pornoroids. I have, however, selected some pictures of friends relaxing out of the limelight for inclusion in this book, many of which have not been seen before. Hearing you describe it in that chapter, at that point, Main Man was a real family atmosphere with everyone sort of living and working very closely or with a, with a shared vision. Yeah, we were like a family. Um, you know, I was the one that was brought in after. It was David and Angie turned up and met De Vries, but I think there was a lot of respect of David for De Vries, and it was a, almost a feeling of relief because finally, and I speak for myself on this, but finally the both of us had found somebody we could depend on who was willing to put his money where his mouth is and organise things in such a way that had never been thought out and organised before. And I think De Vries just was able to give David the security that he needed in order to be able to be more creative. And, you know, I've always said that if somebody, in this case, De Vries, says to you, look, you know, you're a musician, here's the rehearsal rooms, your musicians will get paid, just keep writing songs, do whatever you want, which studios would you like, which photographer would you like, you know, what should we do about this or that? If it was musical, he let us get on with it. And I think it must have been great for David, and definitely was good for me, but, you know, definitely in the early years, they were very good friends. Otherwise, we wouldn't have spent weekends together. And it sounds like there was a lot of mutual respect. Yeah, there was a lot of mutual respect. I mean, you can't... You couldn't not res respect De Vries because he was, he was Mr Moneybags. I always said he was captain of the good ship main man while, you know, we were kind of us as artists were like screaming children running around making a noise and wanting to get our toys to play with. De Vries was there like the strong, steady, as I said, father figure and he looked after everything. His view of how it all ended is probably to do with the business thing. But I know for myself, I had no interest in how the finances were going. As I've always said, I was just having too good a time and doing what I wanted to do creatively. And I think the same was definitely how it was with David as well. So David and I both have a lot to thank De Vries for. I would say for facilitating things that we couldn't have got without De Vries's help. So, but I'm somebody that's an optimist in life and I see my life through the glass half full. So I look back on the positive and constructive things and I don't recall anything bad. Obviously, David did because he had more lawsuits than me. But it was a great time and I will be forever grateful, thankful and happy that De Vries stepped into my life. What a joy. That freedom must have been quite evident during those Bo promo sessions you mentioned at Trident. That sort of set a blueprint for the way that DeFries allowed his artists to work in the studio. Well, we were doing demos. I'm hard to push to remember what was on the Bowie promo thing, but I think Lavender Hill or songs that didn't make it onto 
the final album and the same, I think, with Bowie. You know, by this time, Bowie and I had both been in studios recording songs that were either demos to about to become not demos. And it was just, I can't remember who chose the songs. I think even DeFries chose the actual choice of what songs went on there. I don't think I did, he did. That now historic John Peel session that you mentioned in that chapter was incredibly important at the time. And these days, it's hard to imagine just how influential support from people like John was and the opportunity it provided to aspiring musicians back then. John Peel was mega star. He was the most important disc jockey for somehow creating new things. And the fact that Bowie got on it was marvellous and it was great for me because <laughs> I had something to do other than Jesus Christ Superstar. And singing along with David, you know, I didn't do that many gigs with David because I was always working myself on stage. I, I didn't see that many shows of his either because, you know, I, I had other gigs and commitments myself. But, yeah, John Peel's thing was big and uh, they don't have disc jockeys like that anymore. Somehow everything's got watered down. But in those days, the BBC DJs were hot news. It was definitely a one-off thing. I mean, we'd rehearsed, I think we rehearsed in Haddon Hall. So it was kind of loose in a way. But it was, yeah, it was a really good thing. It was a fun thing to do. I, anyway, I love doing backing singing. I've always loved doing backing singing because you don't have any responsibility. And that time just singing along backing David was a whole lot of fun. I would have loved to have, you know, let's say been on tour. I'd have been happy to be his backing singer. But no, I was always busy, so, you know, I couldn't. That's Dana Gillespie talking about the main man years of her life from her new memoir, Weren't Born a Man. And there are some great pieces of Dana's memorabilia that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of it never seen before, that we're adding to the main man label website each week. It's a really fascinating record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. <laughs>